Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. You know, I know we've gone a little long, okay? And I've tried not to, but I have to confess, I really love this story. It's so pivotal. And I just can't stop thinking about these towering personalities involved. And there are so many great lessons for leaders in this story, in part because the people involved are really some of the greats, not just of ancient history, but of history in general. John Adams, the American founding father during the American Revolution, while he wrote to a friend of his, a young friend, October of 1776, in the thick of it. And he wrote, There is not in all antiquity, if there is in universal history, an example more apposite to our situation than that of Thebes, or a character more deserving of imitation than that of Epaminondas. End quote. Epaminondas of Thebes has been a hero for many people, statesmen in republics especially, and Adams was particularly fond of him, speaks of him a lot. And so was Plutarch, fond of Epaminondas. And he even wrote a biography of Epaminondas of Thebes, which is sadly lost. As a matter of fact, the glow around Epaminondas is often so bright that Gisileus kind of becomes a bad guy in a story about Thebes, which makes him all the more fascinating a figure to me because it's the opportunity to see a familiar story, well, it's familiar to me at least, and to many devotees of ancient history, but to look at it from the eyes of a character poorly understood, often dismissed, or worse, even villainized. And because of that perspective of our sources, in this part of the story especially, we kind of have to struggle a little bit to catch glimpses of the man's mind in action. But... As Plutarch would have said, character is revealed in actions, and you'd have a hard time finding another hero from antiquity who faced so much action so late in life as Agesilaus did. To me, the actions in this episode add up to the story of one incredibly determined old man. You might say he was a man of duty, or you might say with Plutarch and others, that he was a man who was restless, even quarrelsome, and somehow delighted in the strife of contest. He certainly battled relentlessly for his people, for Sparta, for their legacy and their glory. And he fought long past the point when other men would have tapped out of the fight or out of life itself. Think back on the last episode for just a minute, if you will. In 371, you might recall, there was a fateful peace conference at Sparta, 
when Epaminondas stood up and challenged Agesilaus in front of all the other Greek diplomats, did Agesilaus have a glimmering then of the quality and the daring of the man that he was now dealing with, the man that he sent back home, excluded from the peace, effectively declaring war between Sparta and Thebes. Only 20 days later, the Thebans defeated the Spartans in a shock victory at the Battle of Leuctra in 371. And on that day at Leuctra, you know, the other Theban generals actually wanted to avoid a fight with the Spartans. But it was Epaminondas who was the commander that insisted that they engage. It was Epaminondas who personally drew up the battle formation. He designed an extra thick phalanx strike that finally broke the legendary Spartan lines like a sledgehammer. Well, did Agesilaus realize then, maybe, the character of the man that he had challenged? What kind of problem he now had on his hands? This story reminds us that sometimes the action life requires of us is not grand goals and enterprises or making a three-year growth plan. Instead, it may be an unending series of horrific crises with no clear way out. I pray that that's not your story. But if it is, either now or some unforeseen day in the future, well, you can think back on Agesilaus. And Sparta, in the aftermath of Leuctra, was most definitely in a crisis and in desperate need of action. I'm Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to recount and contemplate the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders, both in their good times and their bad. We follow Plutarch, the author of The Parallel Lives. This is part three of three of the life of Agesilaus, king of Sparta. Well, Leuctra was a disaster, and it leaves Sparta vulnerable, but the first crisis that the city faces is internal. The Spartans are most famous for their bravery in battle, their willingness to fight to the last man. There's a good illustration of this in a passage in Herodotus. That's the Greek historian who wrote the history of the Persian Wars. Well, in Herodotus' account, there's an exiled Spartan king there in the army of King Xerxes as the Persians are marching on Greece, his name is Demaratus. And before the battle of Thermopylae, Xerxes is very puzzled when he realizes such a tiny force of Greeks is daring to resist the innumerable horde of the Persian army. He calls in Demaratus to explain. And Demaratus tries to give Xerxes a conception of the mindset of the Greeks, and of the Spartans in particular, he would know. And here's an excerpt of what Demaratus is supposed to have said. Quote, Fighting singly, the Lacedaemonians are as brave as any man living, and together they are the best warriors on earth. They are free, yet not wholly free. Law is their master, whom they fear much more than your men fear you. They do whatever it bids, and its bidding is always the same, that they must never flee from the battle before any multitude of men, but must abide at their post, and there conquer or die." End quote. But let's say you're a Spartan. What happens if you do flee? If you just don't find it within you in that hour to stay and die in your place? 
And in a moment of weakness, you give in to your animal instincts. You let fear overcome you. Well, here's the darker side of Spartan courage. If you fail to live up to the ideal, then you are branded for life as a coward. Their word for these kind of men is tresantes, literally tremblers. Life was really hard for these guys. Tremblers are not only debarred from every office politically, but it's considered disgraceful to marry a trembler. And any Spartan who chances upon a trembler can strike him as he pleases. The man has no legal recourse. And the tremblers are obliged to go around unkempt and squalid, wearing cloaks that are patched with dyed stuffs, half of their beards shaven and half left to grow. And I suppose that's because thereafter you were considered half a man. Well, the Battle of Leuctra presented a problem. On that day, 400 Spartiates died, which is terrible, but an equally big problem for the state is the 300 or so who lived. Remember, these aren't just 300 soldiers. These are warrior nobles, Spartiates. They're actually maybe the majority of what Sparta's got left of its warrior nobility. These are men of power, influence, talent, connections. And you know, maybe they had good reasons. Maybe somehow it wasn't purely a bravery versus cowardice issue on the field that day, at least for some of them. It's not inconceivable, but it doesn't matter. According to the law, they are tresantes, those who trembled. They're supposed to be doomed to dishonor for the rest of their lives. And the Spartans choose Agesilaus to decide what to do. Should these men shave half their beards, go around in stupid clothes for the rest of their life? Should they enforce the law? But who will run the state then? Who will the youth look up to? Some citizens are even afraid that there's a risk of a revolution if they enforce the strict letter of the law. But then, should they change the laws, the very laws that made Sparta great, that are so essential to her identity? Nobody wants to do either of these things. Agesilaus comes into the assembly on that day. He addresses the citizens and says, we must let the laws sleep for a day. They will wake up the next and be in full force thereafter. In other words, he asks them to make a single one-time exception to the rule, given the gravity of the situation. And this is something that the people of Sparta generally wanted, and I think you should remember that if you're going to make exceptions to the rules, that Agesilaus has a massive popular mandate here, whether or not he has justice on his side. And it was either do this or maybe not survive as a city. But Agesilaus gives them a clever way to explain this exception to themselves. And so they put the laws to sleep for just a single day, and they bring their troops home and reintegrate them. Agesilaus was always a reconciler, someone who brought people together after strife, and this was probably his single greatest act of reconciliation. And then, right away, he calls up all the fighting men on a little raid on a rebellious neighbor. It's going to help them get their mind off the disaster and remind them who they are. But Sparta's not out of trouble yet. And as a matter of fact, this rebellious neighbor we're talking about here is one of their major problems brewing. But to get the context of the next crisis here, and really the whole struggle of the rest of this story, 
you've got to understand a little bit about the terrain of the Peloponnese. Historically, one of the key constituencies in the Peloponnesian League, remember that's Sparta's Grand Alliance, the Peloponnesian League, well, one of the key regions is in the center of the Peloponnese Peninsula. It's called Arcadia. And I have linked to a map in the show notes, but I don't think you need to know the map to get the point here. Well, Arcadia, in the center of the Peloponnese, one of their traditional allies, it's a region that's very mountainous, it's kind of wild, and mostly, then as now, it's a region dotted with tiny, rustic mountain hamlets. They're perched on picturesque hilltops and little hanging valleys. It's a very pastoral place. Actually, the later Roman poets idealized Arcadia as a kind of idyllic country Shangri-La, shepherds piping on pan flutes, singing of lost love. Maybe you're getting an image here. Well, these poets, if they ever visited Arcadia, which is certainly questionable, they weren't thinking of Arcadia in the time of Agesilaus. Because in his day, Arcadia is not just beautiful, but very warlike. And that's worked pretty well for the Spartans, having these guys as allies for so long. But you remember, we talked in the last episode about this basic polarity in every Greek city, and also really in every Greek region between oligarchy and democracy between the few and the many, right? Well, over the years, Agesilaus has been doing a lot of careful diplomatic work in this area of Arcadia, a little bit of soldiering too, when necessary, to support their supporters in the area. In other words, he's supporting the men who keep Arcadia allied with Sparta in these diplomatic campaigns. And these supporters, as usual, are the wealthier, large estate landowning classes, the warrior nobility. Unfortunately, though, these trusty warrior nobles have been losing a lot of influence in the area for a while. They've been needing more and more support from Sparta to prop themselves up. Now, one of the key Spartan policies for propping up such embattled warrior nobles is to prevent any city from having walls. One city in particular, Agesilaus, about 15 years ago, well, let's say he aided them in tearing down their own walls. It's a city called Mantinea. Aided them in tearing down their own walls, you say? Okay, it took a little force. But you know, in the Spartans' eyes, it was for their own sake. It was for the health of their cities. Now, hear me out here. And they had some buy-in on this, wall-dismantling stuff from the Mantinean warrior nobles, too, some of them at least. And a lot of these guys are personal friends of Agesilaus, and here's how they would think about it. Walls affect your psychology as a citizenry, and they only offer one kind of security, but there are other, better ones. Men living in a city without walls are incentivized to constantly be vigilant, to stay in fighting shape, and such men are unified. They look outward in defense of their city. On the contrary, walled cities attract the weak and undisciplined. People who can hide behind their walls and scheme and shoot arrows out at brave men from their safety. And this manufactured security corrodes society. When men feel too safe, they turn their spears inward. A citizenry that hides behind a wall is soon doomed to petty factionalism, to mob rule and demagoguery. 
Look at Sparta, the best Greek city with the best constitution. It has no walls. And actually, Agesilaus was once shown a well-built city wall, and he was asked, well, isn't it grand? And he said, grand indeed for women to live in, not men. And also, you know, if you don't have city walls, you have to count especially on the strength and discipline of your warrior nobility, of course. Walls also have a bad influence on a city's foreign policy in their eyes. It's sort of like the paradox of the football helmet. When you have that protection, you get a lot bolder, more reckless. You fling your body and your head around, and you actually end up more likely to injure yourself or get a concussion. Well, it's like that. Cities without walls actually tend to keep more peaceable relations with their neighbors. So the Spartans thought. Now, most of Arcadia is small towns, not even worth walling. But Mantinea is a medium-sized city, and it's quite close to Sparta, too. Mantinea is just in the next valley to the north of Sparta. Actually, it's on the road to places like Argos and Corinth, so it's strategically very important. Well, after Leuctra, the Democrats, or rather the demagogues, the leaders of the poorer, weaker citizenry, they smell Spartan weakness, and they seize power. And before the reeling Spartans can do anything about it, the Arcadians of Mantinea throw up new walls, nice walls, better than the ones before. Ha! But even more dangerously than this, the Arcadians start to hold councils all together and they decide to form a league of their own, an Arcadian league. They've been looking at what Thebes has done with their Boeotian league, the very thing that Agesilaus was trying to keep from happening all along. This is bad. And you know, considering that Agesilaus is past 70 already, you wonder if he thought, I'm too old for this. Because this league starts meeting at nearby Tegea, which is only 20 miles from Sparta, a day's march. And this democratic league, staffed and led by shopkeeps, tanners, and sheep lords of podunk backwater Arcadia, well, as one of their first acts, they vote to rip up all the alliance agreements that they've had with Sparta. No more marching in the Peloponnesian League army. No more paying court to those arrogant Lacedaemonians. And exiles from Arcadia's great traditional noble families start pouring into Sparta. Refugees from this democratic disaster. The Spartans, of course, send in some forces to respond, the aforementioned raiding party, to try to disrupt all this nonsense. But who do you think the Arcadian League leaders turn to now in their distress? Yep, Thebes. And very quickly, Epaminondas himself crosses the Isthmus at Corinth and enters the Peloponnese at the head of a huge Theban-led Boeotian League force to help out their new allies in Arcadia. This is extremely significant. It's never happened before that the Thebans have dared to meddle with Spartan interests in the Peloponnese. And well, it seems that this is not just meddling. Thebes, under Pelopidas and Epaminondas, has now gone very quickly from resisting Spartan domination of their turf in Greece to making a bid for the supremacy of Greece, it seems, and now on Sparta's front porch. When Epaminondas gets into the Peloponnese, he joins up with a very large army of men from the newly minted Arcadian League. 
And there's a division of soldiers from Argos, the old nemesis, of course they'll come. But even some of Sparta's former Peloponnesian allies from Elis in the northwest, he peels them off too. A storm is brewing. It's possibly Agesilaus's worst nightmare. And it's about to get worse. At first, Epaminondas hesitates. Yes, he can use his army to force Sparta to keep her hands off Arcadia and redraw the map of alliances. But he's not sure about pushing into Laconia proper, Sparta's homeland. He knows it'll be well-guarded, hard-going. Or he thinks so at first. But then he gets approached by some men from the Perioikoi, the dwellers around, who defected from their Spartan rulers. And these people inform him that the land is practically empty of its guardians, and they'll show him the way. And they promise, many more of us will revolt if Thebes comes. So, Epaminondas pushes onward. And the army eventually swells to an unheard of size of 70,000 soldiers, according to the ancient sources, which is gigantic by Greek standards. It's even large for Roman standards. And many hangers-on join in, basically opportunists. They're hoping to take advantage of a once-in-a-lifetime kind of chance to plunder and just to see. Because a raid on Laconia, the kind that Epaminondas is planning, is unprecedented. In the 600 years that the Spartans have dwelt in this valley, never had an enemy been seen in Laconia. You, know, you can't just walk in there without a good reason. The Spartans have border guards, shadowy men in the forests. They'll find you. But an army of tens of thousands bearing down on Sparta is another matter entirely. And even at his advanced age, it's Agesilaus who steps up to lead Sparta through the crisis. And in this moment of desperation, he has the Spartans send out a call to the Helots. That's the population of serfs living in the area. And they announce if any Helot is willing to take up arms, they can win their freedom. And more than 6,000 of them enroll, which makes the Spartans nervous. So many ex-slaves with weapons, but thankfully some other allies show up too. But it's hardly enough. And they soon see Epaminondas himself he slaughtered the border forces that were guarding the passes, and now he's leading his massive army forward into the valley of Sparta, burning and pillaging as he goes. He marches at the head of his elite Boeotian phalanx. They call themselves the Fire Breathers. And the Spartans see them right across the Eurotas River, hardly more than an arrow shot away. The Spartan men are beside themselves with indignation, Old men are clamoring for their breastplates and spears, and their anger is concentrated on Agesilaus. It's his fault that they're in this situation, and now he won't even send them out to die honorably. And what was Agesilaus thinking? As Plutarch points out, long ago he had taken command of the city when she was greatest and most powerful, and now he was witnessing her reputation abased. Spartans used to boast, he used to boast, that no Spartan woman had ever seen the smoke of an enemy's fires. And now the Spartan women, normally so brave in the face of the loss of their men in wars, they see the enemy tents and the smoke of devastation in their own valley, no walls separating them from it. 
And they're just losing it. They're shrieking and calling on their men to do something. The enemy soldiers come close enough that the Spartans can hear their shouts and taunts. They're calling on Agesilaus by name. Agesilaus, why don't you come out and fight for your country? You're the one who wanted this. You're the one who lit up the flames of war. See, they're trying to make him angry because they know at this moment, he's not just utterly humiliated. He's vastly outnumbered. And if he gives in to that anger and that fear and desperation that leads the Spartans out in a rage at the wrong time, well, Sparta is over. But even though he's hearing the furious demands of his citizens to lead them out and having to tolerate the shame of these insults and taunts, Agesilaus keeps his men at bay. They have to guard the city. They can't waste Spartan blood on useless glory. This was definitely harrowing, and some of the Spartan nobles have even sent their children away to safer places to nearby islands. They never thought that they would be asking themselves the question, how would Sparta hold out? How would she fare in a full-on enemy assault? But Epaminondas kind of takes his time. He keeps campaigning around in the wide Eurotas Valley, plundering, capturing slaves. He lets the insult and the terror sink in. But you get the sense that he was really expecting the Spartans to come out and defend their turf. But it gets late in the season, and up on Mount Taigatos that overlooks the city, nearly 8,000 feet high, it's the highest mountain in the Peloponnese, well, the snows start to fall. Finally, Epaminondas decides to lead the Theban coalition on Sparta itself, across the icy Eurotas River. And imagine, in times of peace, this time of year, you might find Spartan women bringing their babies down to the river there to dunk them in the cold water. They used to do that, to harden them against the elements. But what a different scene now. Agesilaus rides out in front of the city. He looks down at the enemy army crossing the river. And a Spartan soldier points out to him, the Theban commander, Epaminondas himself, crossing at the head of his phalanx. Epaminondas looks up and he sees Agesilaus too. And the two men fix their gaze on each other for a long time. And Agesilaus is reported to have said to himself as he looked on, Oh, the man of great deeds. And this was the greatest foe he ever faced. Epaminondas is now thought of as the foremost military genius of his times. He's young, energetic, lightning fast, and almost flawless as a general. And with that otherworldly philosopher-warrior charisma, that ascetic magnetism, his men will follow him anywhere. Epaminondas doesn't have a wife or children, they would distract him from his, well, you could call it his holy mission. And yet for all Epaminondas' religious zeal to humble Agesilaus and Sparta, the Thebans start to mount an assault, but then they never actually reach the city limits. There's a small scuffle on the outskirts of town, but then Agesilaus launches an ambush on the Theban assault force and he drives them back. And then, Somewhat amazingly, the Thebans depart. A few reasons for this. 
It's been three months they've been ravaging in Laconia. They're starting to get defections. People are getting bored. And it's late in the season, and a lot of these guys want to get home before the winter sets in. But in a large part, Sparta was actually saved here by the Athenians. See, when Sparta was in these dire straits, Agesilaus dispatched ambassadors to Athens. And well, when the Spartans got there and they were making their case for aid, the Athenians got a chance to think about what it would be like for Thebes to replace Sparta as Athens' main rival in Greece. Athenians really looked down on their Boeotian neighbors, Boeotian swine, they like to call them, goofy accents, muddy feet, funny shoes, stinky rustics, no culture. And they remembered, too, that throughout Agesilaus's reign, Sparta has done her best to fight Athens only when absolutely necessary. It's been a cornerstone of his foreign policy. Remember, Thebes wanted Athens destroyed after the Great War. And Sparta said no. And so in another one of these stunning major political realignments, Athens decides to send an army to aid Sparta, their former arch-rival. And shortly after word of this new alliance reaches his army, the Baminondas retreats. Sparta takes a deep breath of relief. And when the tension was finally broken, everyone had to agree that Agesilaus proved to be Sparta's salvation. He did it by diplomacy and, I think, by doing what nobody expected and fully embracing this painful truth that restraint and humility were the only thing that was going to save Sparta. He just waited the Thebans out. But Epaminondas isn't done in the Peloponnese. Next, he strikes a blow that amounted to a disaster more humiliating to Lacedaemon and more terrible than any other they could have devised. In the words of the orator Isocrates, it was a blow calculated to shame Agesilaus. But this time, it's not a military campaign. For more than 300 years, the Spartans have dominated not just their own area, Laconia in the southeast, of the Peloponnese, but also the southwestern area of the Peloponnese on the other side of Mount Taigatos that divides them. And this southwestern region is called Messenia. If you've ever heard of Kalamata, where the famous olives are from, well, that's in Messenia. Well, for more than 300 years, the Messenians have been essentially helots, serfs, to put it politely. Slaves, if you want to be frank. Spartans established their dominion over Messenia in a series of wars long ago, and there were occasional uprisings, but they've all failed miserably. And these Messenians, like the rest of the Helots, you could say that they are, in a way, the bedrock of the Spartan machine. It's because the Spartans control the wealth of these lands, Messenia especially, that the Spartiate nobility has the free time to concentrate entirely on the art of war. Messenia is about the size of Laconia itself. It's a lot of land supporting that warrior nobility. Well, Epaminondas decides to make it one of the crowning achievements of his career to liberate Messenia. There are Messenian communities living in exile all over the Greek world. 
The city of Messina, for example, in Sicily, that's named after Messenian refugees who came there. Philippamenondas calls them all back. He declares, Messenia is now autonomous. And as an ultimate display of the new Boeotian supremacy, he has his army stand guard as he founds a new city at the foot of Mount Athome, overlooking the great Pomasos Valley in Messenia. And he calls this city Messini. But the Spartans have to just look on helplessly. And amazingly, Epaminondas builds Messini, this shining model of Greek city founding, in only 85 days, that same winter he retreated from Sparta. And he actually designed the city himself, personally. He laid it out with mathematical precision, doing justice to his Pythagorean training. He brings in Thebes' best stonemasons. They put loving care into a massive, beautiful, modern wall around the city. Ashler blocks, turrets for archers, imposing gate, everything. You can visit the ruins today, see what I mean. And who do the Spartans have to blame except Agesilaus? Because it's on his watch that they lose Messenia, this great region, their greatest prize. And in it was founded a walled city that would become a rallying point, not just for the Messenians, but anyone in the area disaffected with the Spartan way of life. Over the next few years, Epaminondas goes around the Peloponnese picking off former Spartan allies. He gets them to join the new Theban coalition. He's a very persuasive speaker. He's hypnotizing even. And this whole new era kind of fervor starts to catch on in the Peloponnese and elsewhere in Greece. And now Arcadians in the western part of the region, Mantinea is in the eastern part of Arcadia, while well, the western Arcadians want their own walled city. And Epaminondas sends them a thousand Theban soldiers to stand guard and help found a second walled city in Arcadia, a third fortress in the region to stand as a bastion against Agesilaus's Sparta. They call it the Great City, Megalopolis. It's kind of a funny name if you look at its actual size, but trust me, for Arcadia, it was big. And Megalopolis actually became later the home of some famous figures, Philopoemen, the statesman that Plutarch wrote a biography of. Also, the great historian Polybius was from Megalopolis. Well, meanwhile, the Spartans are trying to do everything they can to prevent all this, all this Arcadian League consolidation and wall building. And they do score a few minor successes and slow things down. But the trend for Sparta is still down, down, down. Besides Arcadia, cities of Elis and Achaea too, they used to be sturdy Spartan allies. Well, Epaminondas brings many of them over. Pro-Sparta aristocrats in all these areas, well, some of them go into exile, flee to Lacedaemon, others just roll over and acquiesce. And in these circumstances in 367, with this city reeling like a once strong man become now an amputee, Agesilaus sends an ambassador to Susa in Iran, to the great king of Persia. And with the Persians' help, Sparta can recover maybe some of her dignity, restore order to this tattered world. Persians can't like the idea of Greece being overrun by intemperate mob rule, can they? 
But instead, the Thebans find out about the Spartan mission, and they send their own man, Pelopidas. And Pelopidas somehow manages to convince the Persian king that it's Thebes now, not Sparta, who is able to guarantee a general Greek peace. It's another stunning reorientation here, and a humiliation, but Pelopidas gets King Artaxerxes to underwrite a peace based on the current status quo, that is, a Boeotian League, an Arcadian League of free Messenia with the newly founded Messene as its capital. This is such a diplomatic disaster for Sparta that Antalkidas, one of Sparta's main ambassadors to Persia, the one who negotiated the king's peace of 387, Antalkidas commits suicide. The Thebans have a little trouble at first, though, getting any of the Greeks to sign on to this peace treaty once Pelopidas brings it back. The other Greeks are still not totally comfortable with the whole Theban hegemony idea. And it's actually kind of funny. The Thebans invite everyone to this peace conference at their city and the ambassadors from the other cities, they say a bunch of nice things. But when it comes to actually signing to closing the deal, they all kind of make excuses. Oh, you mean you wanted us to sign now? Oh, oh, we aren't authorized to do that. Sorry. And the Thebans actually have to go travel themselves to places like Athens and Corinth in order to get formally rejected. So another reminder, the deal's not done till it's done. But after another couple of years of ravaging and scuffling, Corinth finally says uncle. They've been getting majorly stepped on by all these Boeotian armies coming back and forth. And they crack. And they accept the Theban peace on the terms they originally worked out. On terms of the geopolitical status quo, that is. And the dominoes start to fall. Other cities sign too. Epaminondas approaches the Spartans at last with an offer to sign this common peace underwritten by the king of Persia on terms of keeping the status quo. But Agesilaus refuses. There can be no peace in which Sparta acknowledges the loss of Messenia. And so the warring and the campaigning and the ravaging and the league building continues. Sparta's war with the Boeotians and the Peloponnese, a period sometimes called the Wars of the Theban Hegemony, this continues for several years, and the status quo starts to harden. At the height of their power, the Thebans actually lose Pelopidas. He's been campaigning off to the north of Thebes, off in Thessaly, and he gets killed in a battle there in 364. But you know, with the status quo consolidating and Epaminondas so brilliant in the Peloponnese, the loss of Pelopidas doesn't shake them much. Instead, what Epaminondas and Thebes' biggest problem ends up being is trying to keep a lid on these rowdy Arcadian mountain men. The Arcadians, once they consolidate their league, they start to get really big ideas and they end up provoking a crisis that threatens to unravel so much of what Pelopidas and Epaminondas worked to accomplish over the past decade and a half. And here's what happens. That famous Panhellene institution, that is, institution of all the Greeks, the Hellenes, the Olympic Games, takes place in 
the Peloponnese at Olympia. Olympia is in the territory of Elis. Elis is basically the northwestern corner of the Peloponnese. It's both a city and a region. Olympia is a lot like Delphi. It's more like an international shrine than a city proper. But it's also a place where flashy Hellenes gather on a regular basis and spend a lot of money. A lot of money. Olympia is a cash cow. There are fees for the games and offerings for the gods, but it's also a little like St. Moritz or Monaco. It's a place where the rich and famous Greeks from all over the Mediterranean go to impress each other with fine wines and horses and expensive rents for the lodgings there. And while the city who protects, or in other words, controls the shrine, can clearly make handsome profits and exercise actually a lot of political influence, and Elis, near the coast, is traditionally that city. But within the territory of Elis, Olympia is a little further inland. It's towards the mountains, towards that rugged, mountainous central region of the Peloponnese we know as Arcadia. And well, the Arcadians are on a roll, and they decide to seize the shrine of Olympia from Elis. And they do it. And eventually the men from Elis come with their own army to try to take it back. And amazingly, they have a battle literally in the middle of the Olympic Games of 364. And Xenophon says that they were in the middle of the pentathlon. They'd already done the sprint, the javelin, the discus, and the long jump. And they were on the last event, the wrestling match. And right at that moment, heavily armed hoplite infantry and horses enter the site and they start to clash with each other. Can you imagine the spectacle, all the audience in their fine festival robes, the wreaths on their heads, watching an actual battle on the holy grounds? Well, the Arcadians manage to fend off Elis and keep control of the shrine, but then they start to get greedy. And they start melting down the treasures of the gods to pay for the new Arcadian League army. And it's just really distasteful in the eyes of all the well-bred Greeks across the Greek world, to think of sacred Olympia being commandeered by this mob of mountain yokels. And so a rift starts to form in the Arcadian League now. Because there are a lot of oligarchic noble types still within Arcadia who'd rather be allied with Sparta, but they've been going along with all this Arcadian League democracy stuff because they've been overruled. But they're incensed by this abuse of Olympia and embarrassed. And they see now is their chance. Now they have a strong moral argument to assert. And we'll simplify things here greatly. But basically, the oligarchs managed to turn Mantinea back to alliance with Sparta. And that's not it. The ripples from this event threatened to unweave the entire Arcadian League. Mantinea is one of the League's main cities, and it can turn into a magnet for oligarchic discontent within the League and start a domino effect. But the other key Arcadian city keeps holding on firm to the great anti-Sparta Arcadian democratic dream, and that city is Tegea. 
And it helps Tegea hear that there's a Theban garrison in the city of Tegea, reminding them of what their priorities should be. Well, soon after all this, in 362, after a few years of relative calm in Greece, a scuffle happens. Let's just call it a scuffle. Leave it at that. A dust-up between Mantinea, the oligarchic hub, and Tegea, the democratic hub. And to appreciate everything that happens next, I think you have to remember here that Agesilaus is now 82 years old and still sitting firmly at the helm of the Spartan state. Okay, so a scuffle was probably inevitable, given that not just there's ideological diversity here, but also the fact that the two cities, Mantinea and Tegea, they're in the same valley, about 12 miles apart from each other. It's an easy day trip. And, well, after this little scuffle, the democratic Arcadians of Tegea call in for help from Thebes. And then the oligarchic Arcadians of Mantinea call in for help from Sparta and Athens too, as well. And as soon as they get these messages, Epaminondas and Agesilaus both realize this is much more than a scuffle. The whole of Arcadia, easily a fifth of the total landmass of the Peloponnese and strategically very important, militarily strong, well, it's teetering on a pinpoint and it could easily slide back into Sparta's hands or settle more firmly into Thebes' hands. Epaminondas mobilizes a massive army. He realizes a decisive battle against Athens and Sparta and the Arcadian dissidents could not just win over Arcadia for Thebes, but permanently shift the balance of power in Greece, definitively. And the plain of Mantinea and Tegea is practically at Sparta's doorstep. Tegea is only 20 miles north from Sparta again, through some mountain passes. And Agesilaus sees all this as well. And as soon as they hear that the Thebans are on the march, the Spartans look to him. And it's Agesilaus, at age 82, who coordinates the response. He wastes no time and marches out north himself with the Peloponnesian army for Mantinea. He's going to meet up with the rest of their allies in the plain of Mantinea. But Epaminondas, this wily man, the man of great deeds, he does something incredibly daring and unexpected here. Agesilaus is taking one route through the mountains to Mantinea, the western road. But in the middle of the night, as he's camped there on the road to Mantinea, a deserter from the Theban army runs into his camp and brings word. My lord, Epaminondas has set out just this night from Tegea with the great army on the eastern road towards Sparta. Tegea, only 20 miles away. And the unwalled city of Sparta, with its army away, is almost totally unguarded. Well, if it hadn't been for this Spartan sympathizer who abandoned the Theban army, how might history have gone differently? Because Epaminondas had been camped outside the walls of Tegea and he had his troops casually make dinner and sent many of them off to bed and he spread around a bunch of false reports about how he's going to take a division of his army to go occupy a favorable position somewhere in the plain for the battle. But once darkness hit, he summoned a number of his divisions and he quietly set off, double speed, and on the way, he told them, we're making a blitz on Sparta. They're going to catch Sparta like a nest of young hatchlings, utterly bereft of its natural defenders. 
and his plan was so madly daring, and it hinged on extreme secrecy. But now Agesilaus has the message, and at least he has a chance. And in a mad rush, he wheels his army around and he races back to defend Sparta. And they get back to the city before dawn. The Thebans haven't arrived yet. Agesilaus cracks the city into action. The Spartans are wildly outnumbered. Reinforcements won't arrive for at least a day. And from the circumstances, it's clear this isn't going to be like the time before with the Thebans ravaging around the grounds at their ease, shouting taunts. This time, Epaminondas is going to make a lightning strike on the city itself while he has the edge. Agesilaus puts platoons at the bridges and the fords of the Erotus. He doesn't have many soldiers, and the river's low. It's late in the summer. It's going to be easy to cross. Nothing like the sturdy winter torrent before. But they need all the time that they can get. Then he has to barricade the streets leading into the city. They rake up dirt, dead wood, junk iron, trash, cram it into the places between the buildings. They take buildings and houses on the town's edge, rip walls down, pile up rubble, crowd the roads and the ways in. They even go into the temples and seize the bronze cauldrons that light the fires for the gods, yank them into the alleyways. Any amount of time that they can get the Theban assault troops slowed down enough is worth it. Time enough to get a spear in them or a roof tile on their head. He stations older boys and old men on the rooftops around the city perimeter and they start ripping up tiles to get their ammo ready. They are to spare no roof. Enemy roof tiles have killed many good men, by the way, including King Pyrrhus of Epirus. And the Spartan women themselves get into position on the roofs further into the city. And then, as dawn breaks, the Thebans arrive. Epaminondas musters up on the riverbank and charges across. He overwhelms the guards easily. He wheels his forces around and he forms them up again on the side of the hill just above town. And then he charges. Fighting is intense. Never before in Sparta's history have enemies breached the city perimeter until this day. The Boeotians put their shields above their heads. They climb over barriers, start engaging with the Spartan warriors inside. The Spartans are ready for them. Drills and tactics that they've used all their careers in the open field, they now use in the one place they never expected to. In the narrow streets between the houses of Sparta, they lock shields, form phalanxes, hold the enemy back, Shoving, stabbing, being shoved, stabbed. Did Epaminondas realize, though, that to actually capture this city, this city, he was probably going to have to kill literally every male, teenager and up, and probably many of the women, too. The crowded streets of Sparta neutralized the Theban's superior numbers, it's hard to defend your body from spears in the front and roof tiles from above at the same time with one shield. And of course, these are not just any tiles and spears, but Spartan tiles and spears, which never before and maybe never again had so much on the line as at this moment. The Spartan lion literally backed into a corner. And Plutarch recounts a story here about the son of Phoebidas. You might remember him from the last episode as the man who captured the Cadmia at Thebes. He had died in a campaign a few years ago, but his son was alive, and I love this scene. Quote, But I think that Isidas, the son of Phoebidas, must have been a strange and marvelous sight, not only to his fellow citizens, but also to his enemies. He was of conspicuous beauty and stature, and at an age when the human flower has the greatest charm, 
as the boy merges into the man, naked as he was, without either defensive armor or clothing, for he had just anointed his body with oil, he took a spear in one hand and a sword in the other, leaped forth from his house, and after pushing his way through the midst of the combatants, ranged up and down among the enemies, smiting and laying low all who encountered him. And no man gave him a wound, whether it was that a god shielded him on account of his valor, or that the enemy thought him taller and mightier than a mere man could be. For this exploit, it is said that the ephors put a garland on his head and then fined him a thousand drachmas because he had dared to hazard his life in battle without armor. End quote. How about that? But still, the Boeotians are streaming into the streets and passageways of Sparta. As they do, though, they're encountering heavy resistance and taking heavy casualties. Agesilaus' son, Archidamus, the heir to the throne, he's been running up and down the lines, shoring up the men inside town. But he's also been gathering together his best troops, keeping them back from the fighting, putting them in order, mentally. And when the moment is right... He comes out the other side of the city without the Thebans noticing. He sweeps out and circles around to where the Thebans are assaulting the city. He has no more than a hundred Spartiate soldiers, but they're Sparta's elite, their finest men. They cite the Theban assault force. The Thebans are busy trying to breach the perimeter. The Spartans advance. They start to jog. They pick up speed, go a little faster, faster, and then they crash into the side of the loosely ordered Theban assault troops like a solid boulder bristling with spears. And this combination of unequal slaughter in the streets and the shock of a full-on concentrated Spartan charge on their flank is overwhelming. As Archidamus rips through this chaotic mess like a steady blade, the Theban effort crumbles and the men start to flee. At last, Epaminondas calls a retreat. Archidamus chases them all the way across the river. By then, it's late morning. Epaminondas calls for a truce. According to the customs of Greek warfare, he's acknowledging defeat. He wants to recover his dead. The Spartans put up a trophy right by the houses on the outskirts of town, where they thought they never would. Because trophy comes from the Greek word tropion, which means turning point. You make a trophy out of the spoils from the fallen enemy soldiers, a helmet, a war tunic, or cuirass. You put them on a spear and stand them up. Sometimes you surround the spear with shields. And you put that trophy traditionally at the turning point, the tropion of the battle, the spot where the enemy gave in and fled. The trophy next to Sparta herself. Unbelievable. But it's better than what could have happened. Epaminondas lets his men eat and rest. And as night falls, Agesilaus' reinforcements arrive at Sparta from Mantinea. And together they watch the Boeotian fires burning across the river and take a breath of relief. But as dawn breaks the next morning, they realize Epaminondas has slipped away in the night He's gone, long gone, and he left some horsemen behind to burn the fires all night and deceive them. But the main van of the Thebans set out at midnight, of course, to Mantinea, which is now very thinly guarded. Was this Epaminondas' plan all along? Agesilaus realizes he saved his city, 
but he's also just been outgeneraled. He's practically handed Epaminondas a clear path to the original objective, the rebel city of Mantinea, which originally defected from the anti-Spartan Arcadian League. Oh, the man of great deeds. Agisileus curses, and he gets the army mobilized as fast as he can. Epaminondas musters his troops at Tegea. Tegea is 12 miles south of Mantinea in the same valley. The Mantineans still think Epaminondas is at Sparta with the Theban army. Mid-morning comes at Mantinea and the gates are open. The old men and the day laborers and many children too are out in the fields getting ready for the harvest, grazing the flocks. When they see the glint of Theban helmets undulating in formation, coming on them fast. It's the cavalry. Epaminondas sent them on, sprinting as soon as he reached the valley, to make another bold, swift move. The Thebans have a chance now either to make an assault on the city when it's at its weakest moment, or capture a whole crowd of high-value hostages and force Mantinea to capitulate and win the conflict easily here. And what happens next sounds just too cinematic to be true. But even the most hard-nosed and unsentimental ancient writers agree, Xenophon and Polybius, for example, at the very moment that the horsemen reached the Temple of Poseidon, less than a mile from the city walls of Mantinea, there appeared on a hill above the city, coming down from the pass, the cavalry of the Athenians. They've been riding all night from Athens, 80 miles away, they're the vanguard of a large force that the Athenians have sent to help out their new Spartan and Arcadian allies. The Athenian horsemen ride down. Neither force has had any rest in the last 24 hours. The Athenians haven't even eaten. And they have a fierce mounted battle. But amazingly, miraculously, the Athenians manage to chase off the Thebans. And they save Mantinea from capture. For the time being, at least. Agesilaus reaches the plain later that evening with the full Peloponnesian army. And soon after that, the rest of the Athenians arrive. And with that, all of the pieces were on the board on the plains of Mantinea. At this point, Epaminondas, unlike Agesilaus, he's an elected official, and his term of office as Beotarch, as commander-in-chief of the Boeotian League forces, it's expiring soon and the harvest is upon them. Men in his citizen-soldier army are starting to want to leave. They have important business to attend to. There isn't much time. He draws up his troops as quickly as he can. It was an endless summer day in July 362. Epaminondas marches down the long, narrow valley towards Mantinea, he set out from Tegea that morning. He's aiming for a narrow point between the two cities. It's about a mile wide. Agesilaus comes out to meet him, and the two armies form up. Now, it's really not common in Greek history for coalitions this size to face each other head-on. A battle like this, you know, it's such a huge risk. And all the talk, the mood in the valley, the mood all around the Peloponnese even before the armies line up to see each other, everyone sensed this could be the final showdown. Because on this day, the forces assembled here dwarfed the armies that clashed at Leuctra. 
They're significantly bigger than even the ones that faced off at Coronea in 394, that battle that Xenophon called like no other of our times. But here at Mantinea, nearly every Greek region of any substance south of Macedonia has sent some forces. This is the battle for the leadership of Greece. With Agesilaus are the Spartiates and the other Lacedaemonians and the dwellers around, the Perioikoi, the Arcadians of a nobler bent, a number of Cretan archers, the men of Elis and Achaea are back, and of course, there are the Athenians, 20,000 foot soldiers all told, 2,000 cavalry. With Epaminondas, you could see the democratic Arcadians, including the men of Megalopolis, beside them the newly enfranchised Messenians, men whose walls Epaminondas built. Then there are the Argives, of course, and even the Thessalians have come. They've brought their cavalry, their famous cavalry, and also their javelineers. These javelineers that they have are also famous. The Thessalians train them to throw the javelin as little boys. They're very accurate. Then, of course, leading Epaminondas' army, you've got the big block of thousands of fighters from the United Boeotian League. And there you could see among them the famous sacred band, the 300 best soldiers in the army. Let's not say in all of Greece, not yet. In all, Epaminondas has 30,000 infantry and no less than 3,000 cavalry. You had to hand it to them. The Thebans looked good. And had any battle between Greeks ever brought together so many good men or commanders of such talent and reputation? Probably not. The ancient Greek historian Ephorus didn't think so. Well, Agesilaus stations his men right at the narrow pinch point of the valley. He's got a scrubby forest behind him. He goes for the narrow terrain to limit Epaminondas' options. He's got to use the geography here to make up for his inferior numbers. Remember, he's fighting three to two, basically, outnumbered. But the day starts to get on, and it's getting late. Nothing's happening. And at last, Epaminondas sends his troops off to what looks like a suitable camping spot. And we don't know exactly why, Maybe it was Agesilaus' old age, 82 years at this point, and his awareness of what his subordinates were doing was maybe starting to slip, leading to indiscipline. Or it could be that he was genuinely tricked by Epaminondas' clever ruse here. But either way, his soldiers start to shuffle to more relaxed resting spots, and his cavalry start to undo their harnesses. But then, Epaminondas' cavalry start riding out, Slowly, at first, but it's all of them. Again, it's late in the summer and it's dry and the plain is very dusty. And the Thebans' ride stirs up a large dust cloud, deliberately, clearly, and it's starting to obscure the whole plain. Something is happening. Agesilaus scrambles. He orders his men back into formation, back into discipline, and they start strapping on their breastplates, securing their helmets again. But the damage is already done. The men are confused and surprised, and they've lost the mental initiative. In Xenophon's formulation, they changed from seeming like men about to inflict harm to seeming like men about to suffer harm. 
but Agisileus has no choice but to fight now. He orders the cavalry up to meet the Thebans. The Spartans barely recover their lines in time. Agisileus' cavalry manages to get out and engage the Theban cavalry right as they charge, and the riders battle out in front of the Spartan infantry lines. The men fight bravely, but the Theban cavalry are superior in numbers, and they've also innovated specially trained horse runners called Hamipoi. With the horses is what that means. These are light-armed men trained to hang on to the capes of the rider and the horse's tails and sprint along and accompany the cavalry charge. And when they get close, these men let go and then they flood in on foot and they seep in and wreak havoc on the allied knights. And the cavalry battle sees many brave riders killed. And the Spartan horsemen finally retreat back to the Spartan line for safety. And as they do, the Spartan lines soften up briefly to part and let them through. And this causes disorder for just long enough. And it's right at this moment that they see the Theban phalanx through the dust. Epaminondas sounds the trumpet for the charge. The lines approach each other at a jog, but Epaminondas has his left wing stacked triple thick with his best Boeotian soldiers, like the ramming prow of a great trireme battleship, the sacred band in front, the cutting edge. And they crash into the Spartan right wing where the Spartiates themselves are stationed with extreme force and momentum. And for a while, the lines are deadlocked, counterbalanced against each other with incredible intensity, and then Epaminondas himself makes a fateful call. He personally pushes into the fray with his bodyguard toward the front of his left wing, across from the Spartans, where the sacred band is, where the fighting is the hardest. Then he shouts and taunts and makes his presence known. The men at the front heave and heave, and slowly, slowly, the Spartan line starts to give, and then, in a sudden motion, the Spartans give way. They begin to backstep and backstep and then to retreat. And finally, the rest of Agisileus' battle line begins to give way as well. And finally, to flee. It's over. The Boeotians have won. They've turned the enemy lines. But this was the moment Agisileus launched the master stroke of his single-minded strategy. Because before the battle, he assembled the Spartiates and told them, it is us that Epaminondas will make his fiercest charge on. And so you too pay no attention to any of the others. And so at this moment in the battle, as the Theban vanguard starts to pick up speed with their commander at the front urging them on, a small concentrated section of the Spartan phalanx suddenly turns and makes one last charge. And somehow a group of Spartans gets close enough to the person of Epaminondas to deliver the blow. The Theban commander, the man of great deeds, at the very moment of his people's most spectacular victory, is struck deep by a Lacedaemonian short sword. The word gets out quick along the Theban line, and amazingly, the Spartan-led coalition army is in tatters and the Boeotians can now go on a rampage. 
This part is always the deadliest of any ancient battle when the victors chase down the vanquished as they flee. But instead, the Theban army just stops like a ship without a captain, dead in the water. They bring Epaminondas back to his camp, alive. He still has the sword lodged in his vitals. But his doctor informs him that sword is now the only thing keeping him from bleeding to death. Epaminondas watches the battle coming to a conclusion. He sees the enemy lines retreating. And he turns to his comrades and asks, Are we victorious then? They nod. Well, then it's time. My friends, make peace with the Lacedaemonians. And before they realize what's happening, he pulls the blade out. And so the battle lines at Mantinea slowly part ways in a strange, confused stillness. Among the many dead was Gryllus, the son of Xenophon of Athens. Long ago, Agesilaus invited his philosopher friend to raise his sons in the Spartan way and the Agoge. And so Xenophon did. But Xenophon, as soon as he heard that the Athenians passed a decree to ally with Sparta, he sent Gryllus to his estranged fatherland. Xenophon wanted his son to fight as a man of Athens, and so he did. Gryllus was posted with the Athenian cavalry at the Battle of Mantinea. Gryllus was one of the riders who showed up just in time to save Mantinea when the Theban cavalry rode up on their failed blitz strike days before. In the Battle of Mantinea, Gryllus fought stoutly and fell. And when the news was brought that Gryllus had died, his old father fell silent. And then he asked, Did he die bravely? And the messenger told him indeed, very bravely. And Xenophon did not cry, but he said, Well, I knew he was mortal. The Athenians, in fact, believed that it was Gryllus who had fatally wounded Epaminondas. They had a painting commissioned to the battle, and that was what was depicted in the scene. The Mantineans were grateful for his sacrifice, and they erected a stone monument in Gryllus' honor with a portrait of him on the spot that he fell. But the Mantineans and the Spartans told that it was another man who wounded Epaminondas, a Spartiate named Antiquites. The Spartans declared a permanent tax exemption to the man's posterity, for his deed. And as a matter of fact, a descendant of Antiquities was still enjoying that exemption 450 years later, and Plutarch met the guy when he visited Sparta. Such honors made sense. The death of Epaminondas turned this Theban tactical victory into a draw at best for them. Both sides set up a trophy like victors and nobody tried to stop them. There are those now who say that the Battle of Mantinea didn't decide anything. And it's true that no territory changed hands, no league or alliance formed or was disbanded, no status quo was renegotiated. It did leave people even more confused than before, for the time being. But the results ultimately proved Agesilaus correct. His one comment recorded before the battle 
more than any other fact, I think, shows the grudging admiration that he had for his singular rival. As he spoke to the Spartiate band, who went on to do the deed, Agesilaus told them, focus on Epaminondas. He explained, only the wise are valiant, and only they can be counted on to bring victory. If we can take away this one man, we may very easily reduce the rest to subjection. The rest are fools and worthless. And, well, in the following years, without Epaminondas, the Theban political and military juggernaut slowly ground to a halt. As one ancient writer later commented, the death of Epaminondas for Thebes was like the breaking off of the sharp edge of a spear. It became harmless after that. For Agesilaus, Mantinea made one thing clear, something that had been in doubt ever since Leuctra for almost a decade. Sparta would stand, and Sparta would be free. But now all the struggles between the Greeks, between rival cities, between the few and the many, between the noble and the base, what did they all come to? It was hard to say that Sparta was in a better position than when he had taken on the kingship. Could he have done things differently? Well, maybe it was partly with this looming sense that despite all his hard, vigorous, furious efforts, he had only increased the debt that he owed to Sparta, that he had to do something more to make it up before his time ran out, that Agesilaus turned to Egypt at age 83 for one final campaign. You know, Plutarch thinks it's really distasteful that it's some kind of restless excess of ambition that Agesilaus just couldn't settle down and retire and lead a quiet life. He just didn't know when to quit. And, you know, it's true, nobody who accomplished what Agesilaus did in his career could have done it if he didn't somehow love war and strife. But there were also higher principles at stake. What happened was, right around 362, there was a great revolt of the Persian satraps against their king. Agesilaus' hope from the bygone days of the Asian expedition it seems like it's finally actually coming true. And joining the revolt, supporting it, is the pharaoh of Egypt. He's not calling himself a satrap. He's calling himself a pharaoh. He's still independent from Persia after all these years, and he wants to keep it that way. He hires 10,000 Greek mercenaries, and he invites the famed Agesilaus himself to be a commander in his war efforts and bring along some of Sparta's own troops. And so... Maybe the old Spartan king had hope once again of reigniting that magnificent Panhellenic dream that he chased all these decades like a will-o'-the-wisp, liberate the Greeks of Asia, clear the ground for something greater someday, even if he never sees it. Well, at the very least, there was a lot of money to be made. Sparta was, as you recall, a very poor city, especially now, and the pharaohs offering a huge sum as a prize, and here was a way that Agesilaus could make one final deposit to discharge his debt to Sparta. Well, whatever the reasons he had, Agesilaus accepted the invitation of the pharaoh, and Plutarch shows a little bit of the scorn that Agesilaus must have faced back home from 
Greek polite society. He says, quote, It was thought unworthy that the man who had been judged noblest at best in Hellas and who had filled the world with his fame should furnish a rebel against the great king, a mere barbarian, with his own person, his name, and his fame, and take money from him, rendering the service of a hired captain of mercenaries. When the Spartan mission lands in Egypt, the pharaoh personally comes down to the port to meet them. And there's a big commotion. The other Egyptians all cram in to get a glimpse of this man that they've heard about for so many years. It's the king of Sparta. Sparta! But, Plutarch continues, when they saw no brilliant array whatsoever, but an old man lying in some grass by the sea, his body small and contemptible, covered with a cloak that was coarse and mean, they were moved to laughter and jesting, saying that here was an illustration of the fable, a mountain is in travail and then a mouse is born. End quote. And the pharaoh, this god-king, offers the humble Spartan lavish gifts, incense, perfumes, fine robes. But Agesilaus, ever himself, he refuses them. And he says, give these instead to the helots I brought with me. And yes, any other noble Greek would have recognized this whole affair as a complete humiliation. Agesilaus was forced to fight in the service of the man all the Greeks present secretly thought inferior to him. And he was snickered at by the Egyptian nobility and had to endure the pharaoh's vain pretensions, cover for his employer's incompetent mistakes and weakness in military affairs, and even deal with the embarrassment of an Egyptian regime change during the time of his command. You can read the full account at the end of Plutarch's life. But Agesilaus was not like any other noble Greek, and he was simply unashamed to do anything in the greater interests of Sparta. And in Egypt, he won important battles and received discharge from his mercenary duties with great honor and ceremony. And he embarked his men on their ships, heading back towards Sparta with a massive sum of money, 230 talents of silver. But he never made it home. It was winter, and he kept close to the shore, heading west, to avoid the Mediterranean storms. Then he was born along the coast of Libya, to a desolate spot where, according to legend, the mythic king Menelaus of Sparta was stranded on his homeward journey after the Trojan War, as Homer recounts in the Odyssey. And here, Agesilaus died, at the age of 84 years. Here's a final word from Plutarch. He had been king of Sparta 41 years, and for more than 30 of these, he was the greatest and most influential of all the Hellenes, having been looked upon as leader and king of almost all Hellas, down to the Battle of Leuctra. It was Spartan custom, when men of ordinary rank died in a foreign country, to give their bodies funeral rites and burial there but to carry the bodies of their kings home in honey. So the Spartans who were with Agesilaus enclosed his body in melted wax, since they had no honey, and carried it back to Lacedaemon. I propose that we save our takeaways and analysis for the next episode, and we'll discuss Agesilaus' aftermath as well, and make some suggestions for further reading. 
If you listened this long and you love Sparta, tell a friend, leave us a review, and you can sign up for our email list at ancientlifecoach.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.